Good morning, Church of the Lamb, and if you're visiting, welcome. We're, we're very glad that you're here. Um, whether you're in church, a part of Church of the Lamb and you've forgotten this, or maybe you're new, I, I want to make sure that you're aware of this. The way that we get our scriptures that we use on Sundays is from a lectionary that is used not just by our church or the, even the Anglican church, but is used across the global church. And one of the reasons we use the lectionary is so that we are united with the body of Christ across the world. And while it's not foolproof, I can still get on a hobby horse. The idea is that we are listening together to the whole counsel of God. So that's where the scriptures come from that we've, we've listened to today. I, I'm going to spend much of my time this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes, the first passage that was read for us. Now, to begin, I, I want to tell you a story um, and incriminate myself to start off. So, when I was in seminary, I was becoming very, very smart, right? And I was seeing flaws in the church that I had grown up in. And so, I was learning all these things, and I would go back and visit my home church man, there's something that's just not quite right. I didn't realize it before, but now I see my eyes have been opened. And so I came to the point of boldness that I called my pastor that I had grown up with. I mean, I cringe just thinking about it now. And I talked with him about the flaws that I saw. It didn't go well, believe it or not. I, I still don't understand quite why. I was critiquing my faith that I had inherited. I, I know that for a lot of you, in a strange way, for you as you've grown older to draw nearer to Jesus, you have actually had to critique in some ways the faith of your youth. But there are larger versions of this habit of critique. So we all know the storyline of people who grow up in the faith, and then they go off to college, or they move somewhere else, and they begin to encounter new ideas. Ideas that do not fit with the faith that they inherited. And for some, there is this healthy process of differentiation, of owning their faith in, in, a way, in, in a different way, but in a way that is still true. They own their faith for themselves, and I don't mean for themselves in a way that puts the emphasis on oneself, but it becomes their faith, right? I think we know the difference between these things. We can tease these apart. But there's also a, a version of this critique in which we completely cast the faith aside in which we disown the faith and we move into another way. And there's a tension in this because part of Christianity is actually relinquishing things from your past. Ed read the passage from Colossians in which Paul says, you must put to death the things of the past that were in you. This is part of Christian faith, is leaving behind old things and moving toward new things. 
But there's a way of leaving behind old things that suggests that all old things are bad. (laughs) Tradition is bad. Anything we've inherited is bad. And we must move toward the new. Living in America, living in the Western world, this is especially hard. So there is a movement afoot today that describes the process of letting go of parts or sometimes all of one's past faith. The term is deconstruction. How many of you have heard that word before? Okay, deconstruction. And inherent to that term is the idea of taking something apart. Stripping it down. The term has been around a long time in more academic circles. It's catching up culturally in this larger way right now. But it's been around for a very long time in philosophy and literature especially. And there in those places too, it has had to do with the idea of breaking down old things, old assumptions, old traditions, old morals, and developing new ways of being and thinking. So the problem is, How far do you go in deconstruction? One thing that's not talked about a lot is how far it should go, its limits. So even uh, an academic in this world of deconstruction named Paul Ricoeur, some of you may have heard of him, he expressed concern describing the terrors of what he called unbounded deconstruction. He saw people that all they knew how to do was critique Critique is much easier than building up, tearing down, right? I I can tear stuff down. It would be much harder for me to build something constructive. So how is a person to know when they're done deconstructing? And if we become really good at deconstructing and at taking things apart, will we know how to reconstruct on the other side? So Ecclesiastes is this very unique book in the Bible. It's unique because it essentially tells the story of someone who completely deconstructed. They didn't have that word, but that's what he did. Now, we have plenty of instances of people in the Bible who doubted their faith. But Ecclesiastes is a single account of a lengthy and confusing story of a person who grows up in the faith of Israel, a child of Israel. They then deconstruct much of that faith and then eventually return to it. On the one hand, Ecclesiastes is actually a hopeful book. It is. Whether it's you, a family member, or a friend, The message of Ecclesiastes, which I'll talk about later to to greater detail, the message of it is that you can have faith on the other side of your questions and your deconstruction. If you're in the midst of it or you know someone who is, that doesn't mean it's over. It's hopeful. But in another sense, Ecclesiastes is also a very strong warning against unhelpful ways of asking questions and deconstructing your faith. So I want to share with you one of those very unhelpful ways to approach your questions, to approach deconstruction. And at the end, I'm going to return to the hopefulness that we can have in the midst of it. So here is the least helpful way for you to approach your questions. 
the least helpful, helpful way to approach deconstruction. And here's the problem. It's the way that most of us want to approach it. Alone. That's it. Alone. One of the most prominent features, if you read through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, which you should, is the number of times that the author says, I. First person, personal, first person pronoun. Over and over, more than any other book in the Bible, I. I, I, I. I did this, I did that, and here is what I discovered. Why is this a bad idea to go at it alone? It's scary to include others in our questions, isn't it? Because we all, the reason it's, it's bad is because we all make dumb decisions when we're struggling alone. I, th- this is just it. When we are alone, we make dumb decisions. We do. There's an irony in the way that Koheleth tells his story. Koheleth being this teacher, this author. In one verse we listened to this morning, <laughs> I love the way, as Michelle was reading, I decided to test myself with pleasure. <laughs> what a wonderful idea. <laughs> in another verse, he's describing his search for meaning and wisdom, and he says, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. No, there's more. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. Okay, consider a scenario. We run into each other in Martins. I have a basket with nothing, full to the brim with wine. You, you, I can see concern on your face. You say, are you having a party? No, no. Okay, is everything okay? Yeah, I, you know, I've really been thinking about this. I've, I've been meditating on it. I've even prayed about it. I really think this will make me happy. I do. I think this is going to satisfy me in ways that nothing else has. You, you continue to express some, are, are you sure this is a good idea? No, my heart is guiding me in wisdom. You should leave that conversation, call Dan Velker, he's our rector's warden, and you should say, I'm not sure that Kevin is emotionally, spiritually, physically fit to lead our church. One of the ironies in the, especially the first half of the book of Ecclesiastes is that what Koheleth thought was wisdom, as he looks back on it, It's really folly. You can read the book and you can replace the word wisdom with folly. It's essentially sarcasm. I didn't realize I was being so dumb. I, I, I. I didn't realize it. I was blind. His entire search was tainted by self-centeredness and narcissism. The church father, Augustine, before he was a Christian, he went on his own search for the meaning of life. 
And then after his conversion to faith, he reflected on his search, and he described it in this way. I was trying to find the origin of evil, but I was quite blind to the evil in my own method of research. I was trying to find the origin of evil, but I was quite blind to the evil in my own method of research. When we do these things alone, when we try to find the meaning of life alone, we make bad decisions. We develop tunnel vision, and we can't see ourselves or life clearly. We need help. We even start to believe bad things when we do this alone. So Koheleth, as I said, he grew up in the church, if you will, of his Jewish faith. And in his upbringing, the essential guidance for a good and whole life was a healthy fear of God. So if you go one book back from Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. One of the mantras in Israel is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of a good life, of a wise life. Well, Koheleth encounters, he he goes off to college, if you will, and encounters the world of Greek philosophy. And he learns this other path to meaning and happiness through independent, rational thinking. So reading, learning on your own, research. Through personal experience, You have to experience it to really know. And through one's own observations, what you see. So Koheleth basically does a massive independent study to discover the meaning of life, and he has all the money to do it in the world. He spares no expense. But he wears himself out in the process. He finds himself frustrated over and over again that the meaning and purpose of life keep escaping his grasp. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes all the way through, or if you ever do, one reason it is so hard to follow is because it's intended to mimic the reality of life, the nature of life. Life, even at its best, can be very confusing. Even if you live a a cushioned life, you suffer in some ways, and it can become disillusioning. But confusion is compounded when you believe that it is all on you and that it's your job alone to discover the meaning of life, to locate the meaning of life within all the confusion. So at the very end, of Koheleth's wearying journey, he has returned to the faith of his youth. This is the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. When we ask our questions alone, we begin to believe wrong things, bad things, And in our age of deconstruction right now, we are all supposed to be expert theologians. All of us, every one of us. We feel like it is on us to develop a view, a personal perspective on every theological issue. And somehow to make sure that our view is also on the leading edge. 
We can't go back to old ways of thinking about things. That, that has to be oppressive and wrong. We must develop new views. So armed with our Bibles, some podcasts, and the most recent books on the issues, we take a year or two, a lot of times a lot less time than that, to develop a view on something that Christians have been thinking about for 2,000 years. What, what kind of ego is it that we have today? There's a bit of a thrill in this approach. Maybe I'm going to think something that someone hasn't thought before, but from what I see, it's also a crushing weight on many people. How in the world am I supposed to figure this out? What I'm supposed to believe about sexuality, how am I supposed to believe, how am I supposed to figure this out on my own? It can be a crushing weight. The problem is that Christian faith is not built only on what I believe or on what you believe. It is also built on what we believe. We believe these things. This is what we're going to say in our creed right after the sermon. We believe these things. Holding the creed right after our sermon is a way of correcting the preacher if the preacher has said anything amiss. This is what we believe. The church has spent 2,000 years thinking about its faith and the way that we are to follow Jesus in the world. And for 1,000 of those years, there was only one church. One single universal church. But if we keep going at our rate today, eventually we're going to all need our own church. We've developed our own way of habits, of being and thinking, as if we have to agree on every single matter to remain together, or we must start our own, or that we have to have our own unique perspective. I realize that it is scary to ask questions. It is hard to bring others into your questions because you're scared of what they'll say or how they'll think of you. Especially if you already know what they believe, like a pastor or something. What good will it do to talk to them? I already know what they're going to say. But listen, sometimes beneath your questions that there are issues that you have not identified. And just voicing your questions out loud with someone you can trust can defuse your fear. Many of our questions are rooted in fear. Some kind of fear. It doesn't mean they're not real questions. But many times we need to talk with someone in order to understand what we're really asking. It's also possible there are nuances to the answers to your questions, and you're assuming answers that are in black and white. The answer might not be as cut and dry as you've imagined. But also, it is possible that you are on a bad path. It's possible that you are being deceived by the evil one and by yourself. And choosing to talk with people in this case is simply wisdom. It's to protect you. Sometimes when we don't ask questions of people, when we stick to our podcasts and our books, it's because we want to go down the path that we're on. And that kind of pride 
can be destructive to you. And you need to assess that. Am I being prideful in my questions? Am I? Asking questions alone, deconstructing alone, will often lead you to bad decisions, and it can also lead you to bad beliefs. Now, where's the hope in the midst of your questions and your deconstruction? Where's the hope in it? Maybe it's you or maybe it's someone you know who is in the throes of doubt and tearing down their faith. The hope is that God is very patient. He is very patient. God is much more patient than we are. The church is 2,000 years old. He is much more patient than us. God allows Koheleth to take this long and meandering path, and his story is inscribed on the pages of inspired Scripture. If his story can be in our canon of inspired Scripture, then surely your doubts and your deconstruction and those of people you know isn't completely hopeless. Now, for some people who go through this process of doubt and deconstruction, they begin to take on a belief that because in some way they have rejected God, they believe that God has also rejected them. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, you need to be very sensitive to this. Your job is to be the presence of the patient father. And even if they've given up hope on themselves and on God, you believe for them and remind them that things are not hopeless. If you are the person that feels like you have rejected God and perhaps God has rejected you, you need to know that the Father is waiting with open arms and He wants to receive you back to Himself. He he is ready to receive you back to himself, and he will be full of nothing but mercy and the desire to bring healing to you. You know, there is much conversation today about creating safe spaces for people, for people to ask questions, to be themselves. And I know that many people have suffered a great deal and they need spaces to process that suffering and that trauma. And it's not my desire to make light of that. The problem is that what we typically mean in the world today when we talk about safe spaces are spaces where we will not at all be challenged, where regardless of our decisions or our beliefs in the past, we will only be affirmed. We can't bear to think that someone would tell us we are wrong. The church is not meant to be safe in this sense. I want to play off what C.S. Lewis says about Aslan. The church is not meant to be safe, but it is meant to be good. To proclaim the goodness and truth of God, the Creator and Redeemer, who always wants to show us mercy and forgiveness. But if we want a full stop affirmation of of ourselves, 
That is only selfishness and narcissism. The church is not safe in that way. There's a famous counselor by the name of Larry Crabb who has said that feeling better has become more important to us than actually finding God. And worse, we assume that people who find God will always feel better. When you find God, it can be very difficult to see yourself at first. But in finding Him, you will in time actually find yourself better than you ever imagined. This is the beauty of God, our Creator, and our Redeemer. So when we're struggling with doubts and questions, even seeking to undo our faith, the church is supposed to be not only a good place to be, but the best place for you to be. And you, Christian, are not only supposed to be a good person to talk to, you should be the best person for people to talk to. You should love them, welcome their questions and their concerns, listen to them, and always be willing to share what's true, what's good and true and beautiful. The church at its best holds before us the unchanging nature of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even while we continue to feel the waves crashing on us and trying to change us and trying to change the world. God and the beauty of the church is that He doesn't change, and He is always good. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.